welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 14 for May 25th. It's not 2010. It's not May 25th. No, no, it's May 25th, 2010. Just go with it. All right. Yeah, this is uh, episode 14A. Or... <laughs> it's, it's, it's the refitted it's, one. It's the refit of episode 14 because due to some uh, technical difficulties, uh, we are having to re-record this. So, to make sure that we get it word for word like we did last time, I transcribed the whole episode, and we'll just be reading it off of this piece of paper. Word for word. Yes. Ken, it is nice to see you today. Donovan, nice seeing you too. We are going to talk about Star Trek. Comic books. All right, so that's that was the big joke, and it... Didn't, it wasn't quite as funny as uh, I thought it would as be. As you envisioned. Yeah, I thought you would be rolling in the floor. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll be re-recording episode number 14 now, and we'll be going for Star Trek Early Voyages episode, issue number 4, 5, and 6. Yes. The continuing excellent series of see, looking back and seeing what happened in the olden days of Star Trek with Captain Pike and the intrepid crew of the Enterprise. Yeah, so this would actually be, what, the second or third crew of the Enterprise. So Captain April is the first one, right? Well, you're not going to count Archer? Oh, no, I'm not. You're just counting this particular I'm, ship. I'm, I, I'm counting the real continuity. Archer is real da, continuity. Da, da, stake driven in the ground. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, this w- but at the time that this was coming out, this was the first time we saw an episode or a crew of the Enterprise prior to Kirk. So it's all new ground except uh, it's supposed to be like a a prequel to Kirk. Right. So, so let's just uh, go straight into it if uh, if if you wish. I wish. So issue number four, titled nor Iron Bars, A Cage, which is interesting because this is a uh, remake in comic book form of the uh, original pilot for Star Trek named The Cage. The Cage, which was originally supposed to be called The Menagerie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then when they redid the pilot into the two-part Menagerie episodes... Uh, and then later on, they re-released the original pilot. They couldn't use Menagerie again because it was already used, so they yeah. renamed it to The Cage. Yeah, interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, because well, nobody, su- nobody was ever supposed to see The Cage episode uh, in in any form. I mean, that was supposed right. to be like this throwaway thing. And then, uh, from what I understand, there was the writer strike during uh, around when Star Trek The Next Generation was on. Yeah. And so they needed to fill in some slots. So oh, really? They, yeah. So that's when they released the you know twentieth anniversary of or twenty fifth anniversary of the cage or whatever it was. Hmm. And they had Patrick Stewart kind of uh, 
emceeing the intro and the end, and they, you know, had some of the black and white footage in there or something like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but it was interesting to read that the reason, the only reason they did that was to celebrate the anniversary, and we had to fill a couple of slots because there's this whole writer strike going yeah. on. I think it was during season two because. <coughs> That's why the last episode of Star Trek The Next Generation for Season 2 is that Shades of Grey episode where it's just the clip show from the first two seasons oh. where Riker has to relive his emotions. Oh, right. That was also because they didn't have any writers. <laughs> but they had some good editors, so they're just going to make a show. Exactly. Let's just clip and, clip and stitch. Anyways. Okay. So getting into the issue, um, the creative team includes Ian... Edgington and Dan Abnett as the writers, continuing writers. And by this, this is the whole same creative team as, as the previous three issues. Uh, penciler is Patrick Zercher. Inker, Greg Adams. Color by Marie Javins. Lettering, Janice Chang. Editor, Bobby Chase. And editor-in-chief, Big Bob Harris. So, okay. Synopsis. So, uh, the, the cover of the issue shows uh, Captain Pike running, yes, I said running, out of the head of a Telosian with, uh, with the shadow of cage bars streaking across uh, Pike and the head of the Telosian. The bold red lettering saying, Captain Pike, caged. So, uh, yes. So the head Telosian's name is The Keeper. The Keeper. There you go. The Keeper. And, and I still think that this looks like he's squatted down and trying to push at the walls that he's caged in like that uh, and more so than him trying to run. But I could totally cool. see what you're saying. Cool. Okay. It's a cool picture. Okay. Okay, so we're going to do the synopsis. Oh, please, please. And maybe get back to comments later. Bad comments. Okay, moving along. The story picks up about midway through the original TV pilot storyline in the Enterprise transporter room with Spock screaming, The women! Pike's new yeoman, Maria Colt, or Mia Colt, sorry, and number one were swept off the transporter pad by the Telosians and transported to the jail cell where Pike and Vina uh, are, are being caged. Pike takes Mia's laser and tries to blast a hole in the cage wall with no apparent success. Pike rages at the Telosian, filling uh, his mind with hate and primitive thoughts to block his hidden plans. The Telosian leader presents Number One and Mia as potential replacements for Vina as the mothers of a herd of human slaves. After punishing Pike for wrong thinking, the Telosian departs to let all four get acquainted with their new situation. They they discuss how the whole survivor encampment was an illusion, debate the crew and Pike in, in particular in. Vina informs them that the Telosians' mind control powers extend beyond their planet. Mia's thoughts flash back to her very recent arrival uh, on the Enterprise to replace Yeoman Cusack, who was recently slain on Rigel 7. As Mia was arriving in the shuttle bay, Cusack was departing horizontally. Yeoman Colt enters sick, sick bay, where Pike is being checked out by Dr. Boyce. Their first meeting is brief, as Pike exits after the short meeting. Boyce explains to Colt the crew is going through hard times with the many deaths and casualties suffered on Rigel. 
Dr. Boyce suddenly almost doubles over with pain as he appears to be having a heated conversation with someone else occupying his body. He snaps out of it and asks the yeoman if the examination can take place later. She agrees, and as she departs, the doctor, in a weak voice, says, Please. (laughs) You're hurting me. (laughs) No, it was more like, Please, you're hurting me. Uh, back to the present. And then the Telogian ca- in the Telogian cage, Vina is trying to talk Pike into doing as the Telogians say and pick a mate. Pike responds poisonously, saying he will never allow them to be raised like livestock. Colt makes a clever observation that, that if they deactivated the captain's equipment, why did they bother taking, taking them from him? Pike stake, states... With all their mental abilities, the Telosians' technical prowess seems limited. Mia's thoughts take her back to the memorial service of those that died on Rigel 7. She expresses her feelings of being treated like an outsider from the rest of the crew. Her statement about the fallen crew's lives perhaps not being in vain due to the Rigelians' redoubled efforts to overcome the radical elements within their society was met with distaste by many, including the captain. Pike goes on to say he does not require a yeoman at this time and for Colt to see number one for other duties. Colt calls him on his unfairness and taking his loss out on her. Pike subtly threatens Colt with insubordination, reprimands, and dismisses her. She leaves in tears as Pike expresses regret over the emotional way he handled the situation. Meanwhile, back in the cage... Mina snaps out of her thoughts of the past just to be transported further back into the past at Starfleet Academy. She is reliving her last days at the Academy when she she dumped her Academy ex-boyfriend, Alex Dumont. She goes on to say that Alex died and she felt terrible when she had to break it off with him to pursue her career. The Telosian suddenly comes into her mind to say she could relive that moment, make different decisions, and live the life she could have lived with Alex. She declines and snaps back into reality and the Telosian cage. Pike and Colt have a heartfelt exchange that results in reconciliation between them. Time passes and they fall asleep. A Telosian comes into the cage through a small panel in the wall near, near where the phasers lay. Lasers lay. Sorry. The captain's trap is sprung when he grabs the Telosians by the throat and drags him all the way into the cage. The Telosian changes his apparent form into a huge, fearsome creature, but Pike maintains his grip and threatens to twist the Telosian's head off. The illusion stops, and Pike grabs the pistol and tries to fire again at the cage wall. He tells the Telosian he thinks he put a hole in that cage, but the Telosian's power of illusion won't let Pike see it. When he threatens to test his theory out on the Telosian's head, a hole appears in the wall where Pike had fired. They escape through the hole and take an elevator to the surface, where the Enterprise crew's attack on the underground entrance with a laser cannon was now shown for what it was, completely successful and completely unseen. Number One's attempts to get her communicator, uh, get her communicator working to raise the ship appear to be unsuccessful, so Pike threatens the Telosian again if he does not let them perceive the communicator working. The Telosian refuses and tells them he wanted them on the surface, 
so their jailbreak accomplished nothing but what the Telosians wanted to happen. The Telosian goes on to explain how the Earthmen will lead a carefully controlled life where their children will evolve into a society trained to serve the Telosians. With the all-too-clear description of their future life, number one sets her laser to overload. Pike explains it will explode and kill them all, so he invites Vina and the Telosian to go below uh, the surface to save themselves. Scene cuts to the Enterprise, hurling through space, and Mia recording her log while looking out a starboard window. She goes on to explain how the Telosians let them go after realizing humans are far too violent a species for their needs. Colt says how she feels like she is fitting in as a crew member when Number One joins her and asks her to help with some crew rotation schedules over coffee. They walk down the hall towards some hot java, alluding to their common infatuation with that hot hunk of captain named Pike. The end. Hunk of captain. That, that, hunk of hunk that captain. That was word for word in the comic? That was word for word. Wow. Okay, a little paraphrasing. A little. But, uh, so they didn't actually come out and say it, but of course, that's what they're saying yes. about their common uh, interest. Yeah, she says, sounds like, uh, this is Mia, she actually says, sounds like we have similar tastes. And then number one says, and some things, certainly, and then Mia says, sir, I don't know what you mean. There you go. Oh. Yeah. So, I think a very good version, a very good rendition. Yep. They did not do it word for word, uh, phrase for phrase, uh, story for story. I thought that was a good decision. I mean, why just repeat the same stuff right. that you already have seen 15 or 20 times in my case? And uh, they did it from uh, Colt's standpoint, yeah. which was pretty cool. A slightly different point of view. I, I like that too. But, uh, you know, you got to chastise Pike a little bit. He would have picked nobody over Yeoman Colt? <laughs> ah. Donovan speaks of his infatuation. I always thought she was very attractive. <laughs> oh, how, how Disney of you. I thought she was very attractive. <laughs> now, uh, after the story, there's this little sketchbook on the last two pages of the, uh, the comic, or the next two pages after the story ends. And it's uh, Penciler Owen Wells' – oh, I'm sorry, duh. It talks about Orson Wells, and I accidentally read that part. <laughs> uh, no, it talks about the Penciler Patrick Zercher and how he uh, was envisioning what the crew would all look like. And, you know, it has the new people like Commander Grace and uh, the people that we've already seen like Pike and, uh, and, and everybody. But then it also has Dr. Philip Boyce. And he does not look anything like what we see here in the comic. So I don't think it's in this letter page, but in one of these letter pages it actually explains why they couldn't find uh, the actor or the actor's estate to ask them permission to use his likeness. So they just came up with a new guy. Um, But anyways, it was nice seeing that his image is somewhere in the comic. Right, yeah, so the little penciling in the back looks kind of like the original actor. Kind of, it looks spot on. But, well, it, I mean, quite frankly, the, the original actor was a little on the skinny side. This dude is A little older, a little skinny. Yeah. But in the rest of the issues, the, 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 the boy's, uh, boy's character does not look much like the original actor. No, the, the, the boy's that we actually see in the comic is uh, 
He has two-toned hair, like gray, gray and uh, like brown. Like brown on top. Yeah. And he's he looks, also a lot, lot beefier. Yeah, it looks like a marine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, he has the little yeah close might, cropped hair. Right. We might have said that in the first one. I'm not sure, but yeah, he does look like a gyrene. And while this this other Doctor Boyce, the the one that was actually in the show, he just looks like a an elderly, a nice elderly man. So anyway, so I guess that picture of the Enterprise when they're jetting off, that is the only picture of the Enterprise in the whole issue. That's kind of rare, I guess, to tell a space story and never once show the ship except for the very very last page. Not that it matters, but I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. Just jumping around some other different spots. There is a point where a cult is talking about serving some time on the Hawking, and uh, I just wonder if that was Stephen Hawking. Oh, maybe. Or who, who, who would the ship be named after named Hawking? I say Stephen. It's very possible. Um, that was when, right when she comes off of her shuttlecraft. Exactly. The it's Savannah. Sh- no, the ship's name was the oh, Savannah. The Balboa. The Balboa is the name of the shuttlecraft. So, of which the shuttle was attached. Right. Cool. So it's nice that, you know, Sylvester Stallone will still have an impact this far in the future. Yeah. I, you know, after those Rambo movies, how could he not? That's of course, true. we all know Donovan's little joke. Balboa, the ex- famous explorer, is who it's named after. We're reasonably certain. Pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. And uh, this was kind of a cool part, um, I thought. As she comes in on the Balboa and passing all the... Um, Unfortunately, dead crewmen right. that were killed on Rigel, including her uh, predecessor. Yeah, Kusek. So. Now, there's only three. Did only three people die? I thought there were more than three, but... Yeah, because I remember when those... Got, you, know, those... you know, Kusek got stabbed in the back. Yeah, and that one guy got stabbed, like, straight through his body. Well, yeah, the, the, the first guy that died had, like, a meat cleaver. Wham! Yeah, yeah. so he, you know, he, he, he was... He had a funny look on his face. But yeah, so you know he died, and then um, I'm not sure who. Yeah, else I don't died. remember the other one, but I just got the feeling that there was more than three, especially from like the comments that Pike makes uh, in the episode "The Cage," where yeah. he's, you know, which is supposed to take place right after that Rigel Seven thing, sure. and he's all upset and he's tired of having the lives of 240 people on his hands, and right. who lives, who dies, and who dies. But I mean, I guess even yeah. three is a lot, and especially if yeah. Plus, there were one more of people that were hurt. Friend. That's true. Yeah, and Kusak, who was his previous yeoman, was was established as probably being his best friend, right? And he he got stabbed in the back by that woman that Pike saved. So he, I guess, he would feel a little guilty about that. Yeah, which he found out later. He didn't save her at all. She was part of the whole conspiracy. But that's a previous episode. Yeah. So the the Hawking isn't that that was uh, uh, April's ship. Doesn't it say it somewhere on here that uh, April recommended her because he'd served with her in the past? Or am I making that part up? I was serving on the Hawking when my transfer orders came through. I had about an hour. Well, how interesting. So she went from the Hawking to apparently the Savannah to get there. No. Yeah. No. No, you're right. No. Yeah, yeah. But but I was thinking that the reason why she got maybe it's later when she's talking to uh, Pike about why she's there. That I thought that it was mentioned that she was she had worked with Captain April before in the past, and 
April was the one that recommended her being transferred to the Enterprise. I don't remember that detail, but... but I, and it could have been from something else I read. Um, oh, here it is. I was quite happy, and this is when she's being chastised by him, and he's basically saying he doesn't need a yeoman. She says, I was quite happy serving on the Hawking. I was selected to be your replacement yeoman by Commodore April at Starfleet Command. I did not request this assignment. Hmm. By Commodore April. Yeah, and I thought that... Uh, that school is a Commodore. Well, I mean, isn't that where you go after you become captain? Or do you just go know. straight to the admiralty? Admiralty? Oh, that's and, Like Kirk? Was oh, he ever right. Commodore? No, not that I know of. Not that I know of. But what is Pike in, in, in the episode, The Menagerie? What is he? He got promoted to something. And it wasn't an admiral. Oh, I don't remember. I remember, uh, you know, uh, them, um, them calling him something. when he French fry? A Krispy Kreme? A... That's a little insensitive. <laughs> And if he was here, he would say, beep, beep, beep. No, just two for no. I know. Yeah. Don't like you. That's right. I'm no Krispy Kreme. I'm a human being. Uh, so when, uh, when, when Mia is thinking back of her Starfleet Academy days, mm-hmm. her boyfriend looks just <clears throat> like Johnny Storm from the Fantastic Four. Look yeah. His face. yeah, he does. He does. Now, uh, it shows this cool little courtyard scene of Starfleet Academy. I was wondering, was that ever, this scene like this was never shown in the original series or the movies, right? I don't remember it, except for, well, there were some scenes uh, when Picard had gone back to uh, Starfleet Academy, but I don't remember a shot like that being there. It's a nice wide one, shows uh, Golden Gate in the background. It's actually reminiscent, as you're about to say, I'm sure, since I've been through this once before, of the uh, Star Trek movie. It does, movie. doesn't it? Or yeah. is it just me remembering things in hindsight? I never went back and checked my uh, original musings, but it, to me, it looks just like it. Even I, I kind of even remember the fountain when when Picard, or not Picard, Kirk and McCoy Kirk. are talking about how he's going to do the uh, Kobayashi Kobayashi Maru. Maru for a third time. Exactly. And Picard, or man, I got Picard on the mind, don't I? <laughs> and McCoy's like, nobody does it twice, let alone three times. Gamma Jim. That's my, my bones impression. It was very good. Thank you. So in the in the original series, never mind that, completely off subject, but in the original movie show, he was called Bones because he was an old Saul Bones, right? That's what they called Frontier Doctors. Oh, is that what it's supposed to be? That's what I always heard. It's supposed to be harkening back to uh, cowboy stuff again? Exactly. Because, you know, that's what they wanted back then. But, uh, I like what they did in the movie. Yeah, where she stole, she got everything in the divorce, including and he only has his bones. I thought it was good. Yeah, and I think, uh, I forgot the actor's name, but I think he did a great job as McCoy. Uh, he was, he was, most people on that show, I thought, were. Very good. Very good. Yeah. But, you know, he did, he definitely did a reasonable clipped impression of DeForest Kelly, but he still made it his own. Yeah. So I, I like that, as most all of them did, did a nice homage to their original characters, but yeah. really went their own way. Yeah, especially since some of them didn't look anything like their previous counterparts, like, like Simon Scotty? Pegg. Simon Pegg does not look at all like Jimmy Doohan. No, and he doesn't act much like Scotty either, which is great, because he's a crack-up. But it was, he was good. Yeah. And Pike didn't look anything like... Uh, uh, the original. Yeah, what's his name? I totally drew a blank. 
Um, I keep on forgetting. Hunter. Jeffrey Hunter. Jeffrey Hunter. And the new one is Bruce Greenwood, who was famous for, well, I think he was famous, for the the TV show Nowhere Man. And I do not remember that show. It lasted one season on UPN. Wow. And the only reason I probably remember it is because watching Voyager season one, it would always have advertisements for Nowhere Man. On UPN. The Doom Network. At the time, it was it was the next best thing. To a Doom Network? It wasn't a Doom Network. It was the greatest <laughs> network on TV. Because it had Voyager. Exactly. And someday it was going to have Enterprise. I mean, yeah, that was a win-win situation. Was this still UPN when Enterprise came out? It was. I, I guess it so. was. I think it still was. Because yeah. I don't think it became the CW until later. It was the CW, right? It was WB and UPN, and then it got merged into CW, right? I guess so. So what does CW stand for? I mean... Um, I don't know. Warner Warner Brothers? But what was the... What's the C then? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I never thought of it. It's not UPN. I mean, it's It's not not Paramount. Well, Paramount's now owned by CBS, so maybe it's C for CBS. Oh, could be. Could be. All right. All right, anyways, way off subject, way off subject. Yeah. Hey, real quick, when we when she was coming off the Balboa and they <clears> were bringing in the dead guys, they're in photon torpedo tubes or yes. casings, which we see in Star Trek Two and, and in other comic books and stuff. Um, so I, it kind of makes sense why that would be maybe an ad hoc or, you know, just as, you know, use, use it as a, as a casket. Casket. But my question is, is like usually on ships, so when somebody dies, don't they just throw the body in the water? Yep. So just throw it in there. Why would they ship these people back to Earth or wherever? Would well, they just I guess shoot them towards can. the Genesis planet like, like they do in Star Trek 2? Well, I always wonder why they did that. Why not? I, I, know, this, I know Kirk said the old uh, give his body to the planet he was nurturing so well, blah, 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 blah. But it never did. I mean, the only reason they sent it down is so he could become, uh, you know, uh, resurrected uh, like Christ, Christ-like figure. But, uh, but in reality, oh, yeah, come on. The same story told over and over. So that's the only reason they did that. I always thought Come it was, on. I thought that was like the normal thing to do when someone no. dies. No, you, you shoot them, them down to the, the, the closest planet. Nah, I think they just, well, they're supposed to burn up an entry so that they never actually make it to the. Well, how come that didn't happen? Genesis planet was still in flux and it didn't have uh-huh. quite quite the same atmosphere. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> A magnetic uh, electromagnetic flux occurred and uh, cushioned its landing. Right. So it didn't totally crush everything inside of it when it impacted. Well, he, he was dead, so it didn't have to. And well, then the Genesis planet Matrix somehow... Took what took took that that pool of, of ruined flash. There might have just been one little cell left after it it's burned like up. Cloning. And then that it's little like cell became the new Spock. Could be. All right, Even anyways. though they did show the uh, casket, as I recall, yeah. on the planet. Casket... Yeah. Photon it, it torpedo did. thing. It did, it did. And all the plants growing out of it. Yeah. I saw that casket, by the way, at Star Trek Experience. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Back when did they have that? Uh, did they? Yeah, it was uh, in the... I've been there like three times. Did you take the little tour, the uh, tour on the upper deck of the promenade? You had to pay extra. I don't remember that. And it might have been new. I went on the ride. 
I went on both rides, and then yeah. there was another thing you could pay for, and it was like this extra little tour, and they had a, the the uh, costume for the uh, the salt monster, you know that one in, uh-huh. in Man Trap. Yeah, and they had the casket that Leonard Nimoy was in. Uh, hmm. It was pretty interesting. All right, anything else for this issue? No. Although before you did mention about the kind of cool artistry. Oh yeah, there when when he's choking the gorilla. Yeah, so when the Telosian does the mind trick and makes him think he's a, he's choking a gorilla, Pike, when in actuality it's only the Telosian. Yeah, it's this cool shot where it looks like the panel's being ripped in half, and then on the top panel is the gorilla arms choking Pike, and then on the bottom half is the Thelosian being throttled. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It is it, really it, cool. It, it's yeah. an example of the, the cool kind of things you can do uh, in the medium of comic book dumb that you can't quite pull off on a 60s tv show (laughs) yeah i think in the in the previous recording we also did mention how you know the uh theologian being a theologian or theologian how do you say it theologian theologian uh how they having that power to just control somebody's mind uh in such a way is like the ultimate way to control somebody i mean yeah. like i mean he's almost like the devil when he's talking to mia where he's like oh you can relive this you can do whatever you want to we want you to do it we want mm-hmm. you to be happy right so just like uh you know the devil whispering in your ear that y- you should do that i thought it was good i thought it was a uh, you know it's pretty spooky having somebody in your head like that very much and um and again good writing very, very good right abnet and edginton these, it's a good writing team. Yep. At least in all the issues so far. Yeah, I don't know how far they go. They might go through... I mean, there's only 17 issues of this yeah. early voyages. So. Hopefully they go the whole way, because I really like them. All right, so let's jump into issue number... Five. Five. Which came out in June 1997. I have a copy of the issue here, so I can tell you who wrote it. I didn't write it in my notes, sorry. It's the same, guys. Is it? All right. So, Early Voyages, issue number five. Uh, writers are Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton. Penciler, Patrick Zercher. Inker, Greg Adams. Colorist, Marie Jarvins. Letterer, Janice Chang. Editor, Bobby Chase. And editor-in-chief, Bob Harris. Starts off with a cover of Yeoman Colt firing her laser at an armored Vulcan. Uh, that's using the uh, the Lerpa weapon that we saw in a muck time, and there's a caption there that says, "They're armed. They're savage. They're Vulcan." All right, so it starts off on a very barren and cold planet of Darren two two four, and there's an away team that consists of Spock, Pike, Colt, Doctor Boyce, and two other blue shirts, and they're searches they're searching for traces of the science vessel USS Cortez, which was lost eight weeks ago. Spock leads them to the destroyed shuttle Apollo. Pike calls the ship and speaks to number one for a second uh, to inform her that they have found uh, the shuttle. And as he's reporting to her, they lose the signal due to the ionization of the atmosphere. Number one in her commander's log voices her uneasiness about the situation that they're in. And she's also concerned how the ionization of the atmosphere is causing weird sensor echoes or sensor ghosts. So while investigating the shuttle, Colt is boosted up on top of the craft um, 
And just as she gets up there, Spock tells Pike that uh, he has a curious sensation that something is here. Almost as if he has the force. (laughs) And he's about to say, I have a bad feeling about this. Anyways, just as he says this, uh, one of the blue shirts, whose name is Shinobi, finds a piece of the wreckage. And as he picks it up and says, hey guys, uh, this green bolt of energy slams into him and and I guess vaporizes him. Because we don't see him anymore. Uh, more of this energy starts raining down on the crew, and they seek shelter behind some uh, rock outcropping. Uh, boys and another blue shirt named King Come try to return fire, uh, but they can't find the source of the uh, the attack. Suddenly, a warrior uh, suddenly appears, uh, declaring, "Death greets you, outsider!" in some foreign language, and he attacks and kills King Come. Pike, enraged about the loss of his crewmen. Uh, fires his laser at the at the warrior. Uh, the beam just glances off, and the warrior says, "You will bleed for that." And he rushes Pike, and just as about, just as he's about to clobber him, he's struck with a a larger laser beam and, and is killed. Uh, Yeoman Colt uh, said that is standing on top of the shuttle, and she says that she was able to retrieve the phaser rifle. She calls it phaser rifle uh, from the wreckage. As Boyce tells her that he need, she needs to get down because she's an easy target up there, uh, the shuttle is shot and destroyed uh, by some more of the, the, the crazy green energy. But luckily we do see that Colt is able to jump clear of the explosion. All right, aboard the Enterprise, Tyler and Sita uh, discuss uh, Tyler's uneasiness about the sensor echoes that, uh, that they were talking about earlier. And as they are discussing it with number one, the proximity alarms go off and the Cortez shows up and starts attacking the Enterprise. Back on the battlefield, Spock and Pike attempt to draw the warrior's attention, uh, fire by firing a wide beam spread. And somehow this is going to scare the warriors away. It doesn't quite scare them away, but they do stop shooting the energy and they start uh, running up to the crew to attack them with uh, Lerpas, which Spock recognizes and he's shocked to see that these uh, warriors would have the Vulcan weapon. All right, so as the spot, uh, 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 very similar to earlier, just as the warriors are about to overcome the crew, uh, they are dis- the, the, the ground just explodes, and there's these large uh, hovering uh, ships that are firing on the warriors. Um, so Pike thanks the newcomers for the rescue, and the leader identifies himself as Sutek of the Last of All Cities. Uh, Spock recognizes the language as being Vulcan. Uh, En route to the last of all cities, Spock hypothesizes that this could be a Vulcan colony uh, from the time before the Logic Enlightenment. As they arrive to the city, they're escorted to the building, which I'm assuming is the uh, capital. Spock speculates that perhaps Sutek can explain what happened, and as soon as he says this, Sutek turns on them and very angrily says that he will not answer to the likes of you and at this point he starts speaking english and they speak english to the rest of the show they are presented to the matriarch Kepel or tekel and pike introduces himself and explains uh that they're searching for the lost ship and as he's explaining he says oh i see you already have captain stone who is the captain of the cortez and uh they they get to have a little sidebar uh stone and uh pike explain uh or they talk about how the um 
some of the other Vulcans were able to overpower the the crew of the Cortez and and uh, have have butchered them. I think they actually say butcher. Yeah, they say we're able to butcher most of the crew. Yep. All right. So Stone explains that uh, that these Vulcans have advanced weaponry that's actually outlawed currently on Vulcan. Uh, Spock explains that if these Vulcans were able to get back to the planet Vulcan, uh, that that these people and the weapons would somehow destabilize the whole culture. Uh, Sutek says that he would not want to return to a weak Vulcan and continues to insult the humans and the rest of the Federation that do not follow follow their warrior ideals. As Pike starts to confront him on this, Colt explains that uh, the Enterprise is now able to uh, communicate and informs them that they are under attack. Uh, In space, the Enterprise is being hammered by the Cortez, the Vulcans aboard the Cortez were able to uh, install one of their super hyper weapons, and uh, the commander orders them to fire on the Enterprise, and we get this great shot of the Enterprise being engulfed by this uh, crazy green energy. It's a really cool ending of the episode, I thought. And it says, to be continued. Yes, quite the cliffhanger. Yeah. This is the first cliffhanger we've had. This No, we've had... This is, this is the first two first two-parter. Yeah, that's right, it is. Although, uh, as we might have mentioned before, uh, this series does let go with some nice story arcs that go across multiple issues. Right. But this is truly a two-parter. That's right. Now, I'm always a big fan of things being in continuity. So if you do something in one issue, you know it'll, it'll come back in a couple of issues later. Uh, and I think that the Dr. Boyce storyline is a very good example of that. So as of this point, issue number five, we have no idea what's wrong with that boy. But there's something very wrong. Yeah, and we will find out here very soon. Indeed. But uh, again, that's something that I think they do very well in comic books, <coughs> but I don't think they always do it very well in TV shows of this generation. I think now with Lost and... You know, Dexter and all these other shows that I think, you know, they actually continue one into each other and, mm-hmm. and they can actually spend a whole season telling one story. I love that type of series as opposed to hitting the reset button at the end of the episode and the next episode starts where the previous episode started for sure. the most part. And, of course, Enterprise did some of that, especially in the uh, uh, latter seasons. Yeah, Enterprise did it really, really heavily in that uh, season three not so much in season four, but season three it was really heavy. They were in the the expanse, exactly. And uh, I think Deep Space Nine did it did it pretty well. Maybe not to the extent of Enterprise, but Deep Space Nine when they were doing the Dominion War. Yeah. I mean, there was there was a lot of times when it would say previously on Deep Space Nine, and it could take ten minutes before they <laughs> told you all the clips that you uh, that were in previous episodes that you need to know they before you start this one, right? So yeah, I, I love I love that kind of storytelling that you can only get really in comic books and in television shows if if they're done that way. It's hard to do that in a movie because you may not watch it. True, but there are multiple things like Star Wars, right? But you only get maybe and even cliffhangers. Well, Star Wars, the original trilogy, was only three movies, so there was only that's only six hours worth of storytelling. Whereas a TV show, a season could be twenty episodes long, so that's twenty hours worth of storytelling and right. character development you could have. So I just think TV shows, ha- TV shows like comic books can just you know give you a little bit of the story so that you can look at the whole series or the whole season and say, oh, that was a 20-hour episode, 20 hour episode. Mm-hmm. I like it. There you go. Anyways, enough about that. 
Let's talk about issue number five. Let's indeed. I, I'm going to jump forward into it. You may want to go back, but I got to jump right away. Uh, phaser rifle. Although they might not call it a phaser rifle. They do call it a phaser rifle. They, yeah. they do call it a phaser Okay. Yeah, they, they don't talk about laser rifles or laser guns in, well, in the comic book series, even though that's what they called it in they, the episode. Yeah, and uh, actually I think the comic book did refer to these as a laser at one point. Oh, did it? Although very seldom. I thought it didn't, and I was making a comment that it should have, but I might I, be wrong. I think there was a point in here where they referred to it as a laser. I believe you. But um, it is a little... Uh, incongruous having a phaser rifle, but maybe the phaser was such a newer technology that mm. they only could build it in the larger one. But this is the same. This is this looks like looks like pretty much the same phaser rifle that uh, Yeoman Colt is fetchingly waving. Yeah, um, it looks like the same one that Kirk used. Maybe a little different, but pretty close. And I, I always just love that phaser rifle. Do you have a prop of it? I don't. I wish I did. Do they make them? I'm sure they do. I. I don't know. That would be a pretty cool prop. That is something I've looked I've looked for over the years. Hmm. So I, I do, of course, have a uh, a next gen phaser rifle from Nemesis. From uh, First Contact. Oh, okay. I mean, it wasn't used in First Contact, right? Right. But right. the same but the, mold. The same mold. Which I think they use that same mold in um, Voyager, right? Voyager was interesting because they had several different versions. But yes, they eventually went and used the movie one. Right. But at first, they had even another phaser rifle design. Remember that one where, where it was all down to Janeway? And, and there's these, these things that were actually in the, most of the crew, and she there's was like the, the only little, one? The little balls of something? Yeah, and then they would, would, would go in the, in the crewman's body, yeah. and all these little bugs would fly out of the bodies. I and, do remember uh, that, and she's, she's just like in her undershirt, and she looks like something from Aliens or something. Yeah, yeah. Where she's walking around with this big gun. Yeah, a little Ripley-ish. Yeah, so that, that wasn't the normal... No. Uh, okay, that, I thought that was. That, that was yet another phaser rifle design. Okay. Not, the likes of which I did not see in Deep Space Nine. Mm. Or any of the other episodes. But not the uh, god-awful bad phaser design, that, or phaser rifle they had in Star Trek The Next Generation, where it was basically the handheld phaser on this long stick, and it looked Well, Deep Space silly. Nine used that, too. Did they? Oh, they I, did. I hate that rifle so much. I know. It wasn't very good. So I, I really liked it that they changed the uh, design for the movies, and I mm. thought they did from Deep Space Nine, too. But it makes sense, because... Deep Space Nine was already on for three years before First Contact came out. Or maybe even longer. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Let's see what else. So, I like how they don't have red shirts in this continuity, but they have blue shirts. And the blue shirts are just as disposable as red shirts. (laughs) (laughs) So, we have two of them, which have very strange names, I thought. Shinobi and Kingcom. But uh, they're the only two not normal crewmen on this away part away mission, and they get killed pretty darn quick. Exactly. So if they're guys that you never saw before, odds are they're going to be killed just to show how serious the situation is. Now the planet's name is Darren Two Two Four. So my understanding is that usually the planet's name, like Talos Four or Aaron 3, which I guess is what Earth would be, mm-hmm. is the name of the sun, and then the number corresponds to what, Where it is in orbit. what planet it is from the sun. Mm-hmm. So are they implying that Darren 224 is the 224th planet from 
the the son, Darren? No. They're not? Probably not. Unless it's a super giant of which you've got to be that far away to be habitable. I don't well, know. The super giant, the larger suns are actually colder. So the further you are away from a super giant, the colder you would be. I, I'm going to have to just uh, not, I, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm just going to go ahead and let that ride. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure about that astro- astronomical assertion, but yes. Yeah, because the white stars are the more compact one, the newer ones, and they're the hotter ones. And then you have the yellow one like ours is, which is bigger and and still really hot. And then you and then when they get older, they get bigger. Even they swell they out. Right. Kind of like your Aunt Gertrude. I don't have an Aunt Gertrude. And if I did, she would not appreciate that. <laughs> no, she wouldn't. All right, so anyways, uh, back to the comic. Yeah, I'm not sure what the 224 is, or 244 or whatever. I don't know. 224, I think. I definitely know that they, uh, they'll refer to stars sometimes when they won't bother naming them. They'll give it a number, like M364 or whatever. Right. But that's when they just number the star. I'm yeah. not sure how that would work into naming a planet. All right, it doesn't matter. I was just, I was just curious. So what do you think about the Cortez when it actually shows up? Um, you know, cool. It looks a little bit like, uh, like the Reliant. It looks just like the Reliant, mm-hmm. except it's like old school Reliant. Old with, school. With the round nacelles and the, the, red, <coughs> the red ends. I yep. thought that was really cool. That's interesting how they would pick that. Because it kind of is like, uh, like a throwback to, um, Wrath of Khan. Right. Where again, bad guys got a hold of a starship. And was using it on the Enterprise. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Rathacon in these two issues. Yeah. One, you have a, another Miranda, or an older version of the Miranda ship, which is what the Reliant was. And then, as we'll see in the next next episode, or next issue, uh, they, they take a couple other pages out of the Rathacon book. Exactly. Uh, but I thought this was pretty cool, and then it made me think that the Reliant was the first non-Enterprise-class ship they ever made for the TV show or movie because in the old show every ship was Constitution class and yep. then the movie the Enterprise is the only uh, Federation ship we see I think unless does the does V'ger zap another ship in that show I know it takes out a space station space station but yeah. I remember I don't remember a ship yeah so I mean it was Klingon ships but not a Federation right. ship so I think I think the Reliant was the first non-Enterprise ship they ever created to be filmed. But I think they've used it in other media before that, right? Maybe, I maybe don't in like know. some blueprints or something. Oh, that. Oh, you're trying to remind <laughs> me. Okay, fine, fine, fine. So uh, Donovan is doing his best to recreate the original time when we recorded this. I thought it was an interesting comment you made back <clears> then. <throat> yeah, so when I was a kid, I used to have Star Trek blueprints. Okay, maybe not quite a kid. I was probably uh, I was in eighth grade or something like that. And uh, I had Star Trek blueprints. And if you look in the Star Trek blueprints, you see that they have multiple versions. I mean, they've got the, um, they've got the Constitution class, yes. They have a Dreadnought class, which I failed to mention last time. And the, dread, the Dreadnought class has a third nacelle. Coming out of the engineering section cool. or coming out of the, out saucer, of the saucer section? Yeah, I think I've seen that. Yeah. And then, they, and then the other ones that are kind of interesting and kind of cheap is where they have the, and I forgot the, the, the name of the class, but um, I got the saucer section, it's got a single nacelle, 
and the nacelle looks like it's been glued onto where the pylon from the saucer comes down and connects with the engineering section. So no engineering section. So it's like you took your uh, AMT uh, model of the Enterprise and ripped off the engineering section, grabbed one of the nacelles, and glued it onto the bottom of the... Uh, of the pylon coming where, where the engineering so, section normally So it kind of looked like the Kelvin from the, the new Star Trek movie? Wasn't it kind of like that? Uh, yeah, kind of. But Kelvin looked cooler. Well, yeah. Because it had an engineering section. It's just not in a normal place. So it had a single nacelle. Um, on, on the bottom, was it? Well, anyway, so it, 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 it still had a nacelle. It still had an engineering section. still had a saucer's section. It was just configured a little differently. Right. Which I thought that looked pretty cool. I, I thought it was very cool. That's a very cool movie. It is a good Go movie. Go figure that I would think that. Okay. Good show. All right, and then uh, I'll have some comments that uh, I'll save for the next issue about how this lost Vulcan colony uh, can be retconned into uh, what is currently established as the, the Vulcan society as we all know. Oh, as we all know, or as we would know if we read books. Hmm. Well, you know a little bit about it. You know about the Vulcans and the Remans and things, so it'll just be more of that. Okay. But we'll, I'll, but save, we'll, I'll save that. Because we'll I'll, we'll I'll, save that until we get to this. Let's go ahead and finish this off. Exactly. Any, so, other, any other comments you had before we jump? I had no other comments. No. Nah. Good, good, good. Okay. So, uh, issue number six is called uh, Cloak and Danger, Part 2. Uh, published date July 1997. Same writers and creative team in general, so I'm not going to repeat them again. Um, and let's just launch into it, shall we? Let's. The cover shows the Enterprise surrounded by some kind of vine-like distortion being followed by NCC 1834, which like, looks like an early version of the Reliant, named the Cortez. The Enterprise is under serious attack and can't take another hit like the ones they have been receiving. Cut to the bridge, where the crew is putting out fires and dealing with the emergency. Nano reports they lost contact with Captain Pike when four Vulcans in battle armor beam onto the bridge. Number one is shocked to see that the boarding party is made up of Spock's people. Vulcans. Meanwhile, back on the planet, Pike and the landing party are in the presence of Matriarch Tikal, the leader of the city dwellers who wish to return to Vulcan. The other powerful faction in their society is led by Commander Tagok. They uh, violently oppose returning to Vulcan, the Vulcan home planet. Tagok and his followers have seized the Cortez, butchered most of the crew, and are using the starship to attack the Enterprise. Pike is trying to raise the Enterprise with his huge communicator, but is failing to receive a reply from number one. Hey, just real quick, size doesn't matter. Let's not call it a huge... It's a huge communicator. Huge! On board the Enterprise, Tagak and, and multiple boarding parties have beamed onto the Enterprise and are violently attempting to take the ship. Despite the Enterprise crew being armed with lasers uh, and, the, and the, the, the raiding Vulcans only being armed with Lerpas, the Vulcans start to kick the crew's butt. Seemingly, through the superior hand-to-hand combat abilities of the main characters alone, the tide of battle turns and the Vulcans are driven from the ship. Back on the Cortez, Tagok says, 
If he can't have the Enterprise, he will annihilate it. The more experienced Enterprise crew take a page out of Wrath of Khan and tells the Cortez to drop her shields. One spread of torpedoes later, the Cortez is limping away to lick its wounds. The Enterprise has wounds of her own to deal with, so they let the Cortez depart. Meanwhile, back on Darien 224, the landing party is told of the space battle and the fact that Tagak used Tal Pardage weapon on the Enterprise. Spock explains it's a hyperweapon that was outlawed by the Vulcans due to its ability to ensure mutual destruction of both sides in a conflict. Pike is chided by Sutek, Tikal's champion, for not being true warriors as demonstrated by the Enterprise not hunting down and destroying the Cortez. He concludes that the Federation is weak. Pike angrily explains that the Federation is a peaceful coalition of worlds that are made up of equals. The mouthy Sutek says, we are all equals in death. Tikal, the Vulcan female leader, halts the verbal jousting and explains her people are passionate and must temper their emotions if they are to rejoin the interstellar community. Yielding to Dr. Boyce's counsel, Pike accepts the Vulcan's offer to be their guest until communications with the Enterprise can be reestablished. Tikel observes Boyce may be more than he appears, and she and says he should be watched. On the Enterprise, five are dead, twenty-nine are injured. Even with repairs, the ship's shields are less than one hundred percent effective, and sensor ghosts are caused by local radiation, which partially blinds them. Number one attends to the ship and crew, begrudgingly making the landing party's welfare a secondary priority. Back on the planet, the landing party is alone in the quarters provided by Tikal. Yeoman Colt observes the room is a prison, whether bars are on the windows or not. Spock gives his analysis of Tikal and her people. They are a great threat and armed with the pre-enlightenment weapons that could pose a threat larger than the Klingons and Tholians. He states he believes they will want to return to Vulcan as conquerors. The landing party are taken to the Tabernacle of Sharp Conflict, where the Vulcan race's bloody past is glorified. Pike cuts to the chase and challenges Tikal to come clean with her true intentions. Tikal explains she needs the Enterprise and that Pike is not in a position to refuse. Tikal tells Pike she wants him to relocate her people. Dr. Boyce counters that the Cortez will surely attack. Tikel says she is counting on it and intends to use the Voltak world weapon to wipe Tagak and the Cortez from existence. Spock explains how the weapon turns naked aggression into lethal force. However, it has the theoretical cost of tearing the host world apart. Tikel informs them all that the weapon will destroy the planet and that is part of the plan. Even if Tagak explains he will return to a barren, lifeless world while Tikal and her followers escape in the Enterprise. Spock offers an equitable solution where the genocide could be avoided, but he is hit from behind to the ground. The brute that hit Spock threatens to complete the job with a knife. Pike agrees to take the shuttle back to the Enterprise to, and make preparations to transport Tikal's people if they leave Spock alone. Cut to space, where Pike is piloting the shuttle up to the Enterprise, where she comes under attack by the Cortez. Tagak intends to use the Tal Pajdaj weapon on the Enterprise again. Number one brings the Enterprise about to take the captain aboard. 
Back on the planet, Tikal's people fire the Voral Tak weapon at the Cortez. A huge beam, almost the size of the Cortez's saucer section, comes up from the surface and annihilates the ship. The Doomsday weapon shatters the planet's mantle, which starts to sink into the molten magma layer below. With the transporter still unable to get a lock on the landing party, Pike gives the order to enter the planet's atmosphere until they can get beneath the radiation interference. The Enterprise's hull starts to glow red. The planet's surface shattering is causing pandemonium in the tabernacle, where many are dead or dying, but strangely enough, most of the landing party is intact. The same cannot be said of Portakel, who is lying, dying, in Spock's lap. With her dying words, she speaks of the virtues of emotion, how it enriches life, how to forsake emotion would be forsaking their true selves. Her final words ask Spock to remember them. He says he will, as he and the rest of the landing party is beamed aboard the Enterprise. Darian 224 is history, and as Pike, in a Kirk-style wraparound tunic, tries to approach Spock about the loss, he finds Spock in a hooded cloak going through a purification ritual to purge emotion and let intellect and logic take its proper place in his thought processes. Pike expresses his concern over this extreme reaction to events, but Spock said it is not his concern and that passion kills and logic does not. The end. I thought it was good. It was good. And I like how they uh, they didn't have to do this, but they tied up why Spock smiles and stuff in the episode of The Cage. And by the time we see him in Kirk's time, he's all serious and without emotion. Exactly. I guess he he did not care for the the crazy Vulcans. The crazy emotional Vulcans, exactly. Now, I didn't notice this until I was just going through it while you were reading, but uh, Tekel is an African-American Vulcan. She is dark-skinned. So... I guess this would be the first time we ever saw a black Vulcan, well, because as opposed to Tuvok. Well, Tuvok. I guess chronologically, this would be the first time. But by the time this came out, Star Trek Voyager was already out. So never mind. I, <laughs> never I, get, mind. I get confused when you know, chronologically speaking, this happened way before Voyager. What are you talking about? <laughs> but publication date it came out after. So you're right. Never mind. Sorry. She does have black blood though, instead of green. So shouldn't it be green? Or do you think it was just... It's supposed to be green. So all I can say is the uh, anchor is not, not, not doing the job right. That or it would just look a little odd with green. I mean, I guess it was... Well, come on. It's not like it's the neon The 2009 green. movie did it. But it's not neon little, green. Little Spock. Little bit of blood on his lip. He, it worked. He beats up those little kids. Little like kids? Those kids were at least two or three years older than him. And there were three of them. Yeah. But he had to resort to emotion. He did. And he kicked some butt. Now, uh, I really like the shot of the Enterprise diving down into the atmosphere, and it's all having the reentry fire on it and stuff. Yeah. Pretty cool shot. Yep. And And it really shows the nipples of the nacelles. They're not nipples. They're uh, they're, uh, antennae of some sort. <laughs> why would you have an antennae on the front of the nacelles? Why, why would you have nipples? Why look at them? 
Come on, the nacelles are, are round, and then they got these little projections coming out. I just don't, I just don't get the detail. Yeah, well, but but you had pointed out the original Enterprise in the pilot had those little yep nipples. Yep, it had the the little points that poke out of the the nacelles, mm-hmm. and it also in the back it has the vent nacelle or the vent type ending, whereas Kirk's always had the like little bubble right. ending of the nacelles. So. Uh, issue number five, I think, is the first time uh, we see this in the comic book. Up until then, the the comic book version of this Enterprise always looked exactly like Kirk's, which is the one everybody's more familiar with, with the bubble in and the the, the nippleless uh, <laughs> front. And thanks to eBay, as we're recording this, I should be getting a package in the mail of uh, the Cage episode of the Enterprise. So it's you know the the Art Asylum version of the Enterprise. But, oh, really? Yeah, they, oh, ca- they wow, came out with a, nice. They came out with a cage version. Wow! And it has the the vent in the cell and <clears throat> the little pokey thing. Oh my God! Are so, you happy? I am happy. That is great. And when you press the the little <clears throat> command section, it's going to give me quotes from the cage instead of pesky Shatner stuff. <laughs> So, uh, so this is an older one that he came out a while ago. Or is uh, a new no, one? it only came. It came out about the same time the movie did. Because I remember I, the the new movie. Because I remember I wanted to get it then, and of course I waited. Hesitated. And then suddenly you were lost. And suddenly they're all gone, and then they're like twice as much as they were if I would have just bought it when when I saw it at the the store back then. So, anyways, I'm happy with the purchase, and uh, hopefully uh, it'll be there when I get home. You demand. I know, right? So when the Cortez gets blown up by the Death Star ray, I mean, uh, hyper weapon. That yeah, is, that, is that does awesome look shot. good. Yeah, because it's. Uh, I mean, first off, that is a pretty weird looking, almost like buzz. I mean, the the the, the edges of this green beam looks almost like uh, like a saw, a saw blade kind of thing. But when you look closer, you can see it's just some kind of plasma or something. But it kind of reminds you of like a, this big chainsaw going up through the uh, saucer section yeah, and the saucer section is just like shredded there's like little pieces of it and, and you can actually see like little like maybe uh shockwave ripples going throughout the, the the ship saucer section so it's a pretty cool shot and you notice that the reliant also had the uh nipples the uh, nacelle nipples yep so they were going for the nipples i like that shot well that that's that's true. That's historically That's the accurate. way it really was back then. Exactly. Historically accurate. Yes. Way back then. Yes. Was that the 22nd century? What was it? Um, was it? No, 23rd. It was still the 23rd because it was only like 10 years or so before Kirk, right? So anyways, what do you think about all the, the Wrath of Khan references? Oh, there was a lot of them. I know, but to actually do the... <clears throat> The shield. They thing. don't know that we have the codes of the shield. Let's drop the shields and and you know fire on them. I don't know. I liked it because I liked it in Rathacon, but it would have been interesting to see another way they could have done it. Yeah, but you know, similar situation. If you got that, I mean, if you got the keys to their shields, yeah, why do it any other way? Well, I mean, they they did it in Star Trek Generations too, where they had the Balanus or not Balanus sisters the. Uh, Duras sisters. They they got yeah. They were able to see what Jordy sees, and they got the the codes there. Exactly. So, 
that's really all I have about this one, except for my long rant about uh, uh, how this would fit in continuity. Do you have anything else before I start ranting? No, you go ahead and rant. All right, so this whole thing about them being uh, 2,000 years um, stranded on this planet for 2,000 years and, and not as enlightened as the other Vulcans uh, on Vulcan, there was a novel series called Vulcan Soul, which came out around the time Nemesis came out, so it's fairly new. It basically gave all the true backstory about how the Romulans spun off of the Vulcans and things like that. So up until that came out, it was always assumed that the Romulans were the ones that left Vulcan because they wanted to adhere to the warrior past, similar to these these guys. Uh, but in that, in that novel series, it was established that there was a, a nuclear war going on in Vulcan because people... Some were following Surak, some of them weren't, and Surak was the one that took some of his followers and said, you know, Vulcan's about to get blown up, we need to keep our species alive somewhere, so you guys go in these, uh, you know, um, they didn't have faster than light engines, so they basically loaded up in these ships and just tried to leave Vulcan and go somewhere. Right. So over the course of these hundreds of years, while they're in space... Multi-generational ships. Yeah, so while they're going, uh, they lose a few ships on the way because they're trying to experiment with warp technology. And over time, people become a little disgruntled about this whole logic business. And uh, they start reverting back to their <coughs> warrior ways. And so by the time they get to Romulus, the people who are have re-embraced their warrior, they go ahead and land on Romulus while they the, uh, the leaders, which still held true to the the, the logic. Uh, they were basically excised. Ex, exiled? Exiled, there's the word. Exiled to Remus, where they started becoming mutated and they're, they're you know, they're normally touch telepaths and then because they're on Remus, they become more and more powered because, I mean, those Remans were pretty pretty powerful in the movie. But anyways, I thought that was uh, that was that was a cool story, and then I think this this story could actually fall in line with that. That this could be one of those lost ships mm-hmm. that you know when they left Vulcan, they were embracing logic, but by the time this story happens, they've given away, given up on that, and they're back to their warrior Romulan ways. Right. Loved it. I thought this was great. Good. Even though this comic Me book too. came out way before uh, the, that novel series did. I just like how things could tie together like Could that. tie together. And probably did. So uh, that's it on my rant. I think we've talked about almost everything we mentioned in the first go out going. Yeah. Do we want to do elsewhere in Star Trek land? Let's do it. All right, real quick. So this is May, June, and July of 1997. So uh, May we had the uh, Star Trek, the original series novel, Avenger which is the third of the William Shatner series. So he and Judith Reeve Stevens and Garfield Reeve Stevens uh, wrote a series of novels. It's pretty good. I liked it. When, I was, when these were coming out, I was, I was on the waiting list so that as soon as it hit the bookstores, I was there because I thought they were pretty good. Uh, there was a couple other novels. The Deep Space Nine novel came out in May called Wrath of the Prophets by Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman, and Robert Greenberger. So Peter David and Michael Jan Freeman, big Star Trek writers in the comic book series and also in the novel series. So I might have to go look that one up because I like them. Robert Greenberger doesn't ring a bell. 
there was another novel called uh, Voyager, The Black Shore by Greg Cox, who also wrote quite a few um, good Star Trek The Next Generation novels. And then we have, uh, in June, a novelization of uh, Starfleet Academy by Diane Carey. So that was a, a video game that was based in like the Kirk era of some kids going to Starfleet Academy. Hmm. And uh, I had the game on <coughs> my uh, Sega Genesis 32X. So the Sega Genesis, uh, to compete with the uh, up-and-coming 32-bit series, uh, systems that were about to come out, came out like this little add-on that you could shove onto your Genesis and play 32X games. They were pretty much crap, but I really liked that one because mm. it was Star Trek. The novel was good, too. I remember reading that. And let's see, novels. July had uh, the start of Peter David's uh, Star Trek New Frontier. So the first two issues came out of that, which, uh, again, I was there. Walmart buying it for like $2.99 because <laughs> they were like really thin books. All right, so aside from the novels, we also had the early Voyages comics. Uh, we had a comic book called uh, Unlimited, which we haven't reviewed yet, but it was a uh, Star Trek the Original Series and Star Trek the Next Generation. So half of the book would be original series, the other half would be Next Generation in each issue. So you got two stories per issue. Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Starfleet Academy uh, all had comic book issues that came out those months, so... Marvel was really uh, pushing out the Star Trek comic books at, at this time. Cool. And pretty good ones. I, I like them. I wasn't a big fan of the uh, of what I read, and I'll admit that I haven't read a lot of the uh, their Starfleet Academy, where Nog is in Starfleet Academy, and he joins Omega Red, which is, I think it was Omega Red, or Red Squad. The same thing that Wesley joined when he was there. Oh. So Omega Squad, that's it, right? What's it called? Anyways. The Last Squad. I don't remember, but but in, in that in that comic book series, Nog shows up on Starfleet Academy and he joins it and it has all these adventures, including going to uh, Talos Four hmm. when they meet up with Pike. Yeah. So we'll talk about that when we get there eventually someday. Okay. All right, that's it for uh, episode fourteen dot one. Fourteen A. 14A, or... I like A better. Yeah, that gives it more of a Star Trek enterprise. Exactly, exactly. All right, so take care, everybody, and I hope uh, you enjoyed the episode. Yes, and I think this is a record for shortness. Being able to get through three comics in an hour 12. Well, it does does help that we had a practice practice run. I think so. (laughs) We should do this every time, Ken. No. (laughs) No. This takes too long to produce as it is. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the